Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is an only child who learned early that boredom was the ultimate enemy and that perpetual motion was her friend. She has rarely been still since, except when she's writing. Writer, pack rat, cat lady, mad sewer, book hound, and anything else you can think of that requires accumulation in numbers. She lives in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, where she grows much of her own food and makes her own clothes. She's accompanied on her quest for self-sufficiency by a very patient husband and an ever-changing number of cats. One constant She's always writing her next book. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Karen Heenan. Thank you, Julia. Glad to be here. Karen, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? (laughs) The writing probably didn't take, well, no, the writing did take me that long, but I've always written. It was the finishing it and letting myself put it out there. That took Longer than I generally care to admit, the joke I make is that if my first book were a child, it would be accruing college debt. Um, I started it probably over 20 years ago as an after work project. You know, I was in a job that I really disliked and it was something creative to do when I got home that got me out of my head. And it was a way to use all of the historical knowledge I had absorbed over the years because I my first books are set in Tudor England and I fell into the old BBC six wives of Henry the eighth series when I was seven or eight, it got the hooks in really hard. And I read a lot of history. And one day it just occurred to me that I should, you know, use all that knowledge, but it took me until 2015 to actually get out of my own way and decide to try to publish it. Why are we our own worst enemies? (laughs) I don't know, but we are. We are. We listen to those voices in our heads. I'd rather listen to the voices that tell me (laughs) stories than the voices that tell me I can't do things, but they take turns. True. Well, you grow your own food and you make your own clothes. Have you always been self-sufficient? I wouldn't. Well, I've always had the skills. I never really thought about it as being that way, but it was definitely something that came in handy during the pandemic when you never quite knew what was going to be in the supermarket. And the fact that I had probably two years worth of canned food downstairs from things that I'd grown in the garden 
Um, that, that was a nice little bonus. And I traded with a lot of neighbors. I have a really close community out here. And we just ha we had a Facebook group where we would trade. Well, I've got extra this. You've got extra that. Does anyone have toilet paper? <laughs> so, you know, the fact that my latest book is set during the Great Depression, I think I was actually in training for that period most of my life. Well, I felt I was in training because I had a grandmother and mother who lived through the depression and it really affected people. It did. I was um, raised, well, not raised, but I was raised around my great grandmother and my two great aunts and they talked about it a lot. And I think it just, it sunk in, you know, seeing the, the ball of string in the kitchen because, you know, you never know when you're going to need a piece of string and the foil and the things that got rinsed out and saved. And sometimes it was funny and sometimes it was like, well, this isn't a bad idea. You never know when you're going to need it. I remember them saying, well, you only got one pair of new shoes every year. And I thought, what if you outgrew those shoes during the year? <laughs> that that was still my childhood because we were on a, my dad was a firefighter job he loved, but it didn't pay all that well, which I don't understand. I mean, you're running into a burning building. You deserve money. <laughs> But I got school shoes in September and my toes were curled by June. Wow. Well, Karen, after you wrote your first book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent? Did you decide to use a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? Oh, I started out with an agent. I, you know, I knew about self-publishing in 2015. I knew it was a thing, but I didn't know enough about it to realize that I could do it. And it, it shows my lack of education about it at the time that I really thought it was not for serious writers and I wanted to be serious. So I queried and queried and queried and I got an agent somewhere around the 70 something rejection. And she read the book and made a few suggestions for edits, which, you know, I took, I was happy to hear some advice on it. And she spent the next year trying to find a home for it, which she did not. And then she broke up with me, <laughs> didn't ask for a second book or anything. She just said, no, I don't think people are really that into historical fiction right now. I would rather pitch contemporary stuff. And that hurt. That hurt worse than the, re the written rejections because, you know, I thought we were getting somewhere. And I, I didn't actually intend to stop writing, but I kind of just put it aside for a little while to lick my wounds and lost track of myself. But we, my husband and I moved in 2018. So I had almost a two year period where I didn't do a lot. And uh, we moved in 2018 and all of a sudden the voices just started to come back. And one of the first things they said was, you know, there's something in that first book you didn't get right. And I pulled Songbird up on the computer and I gave it a really, really hard edit. And I was going to start over again with the query process, but I happened to go on Twitter one day and I lucked into a pitch event where you pitch your book in 180 characters and the only people who are supposed to like it are agents and publishers. And I did get picked up by a small press. I stayed with them for my first two books, but remember how I said I didn't know enough about small publishing in the beginning? The longer I educated myself and listened to podcasts and read things, the more involved in the process I wanted to get. And 
that turned out not to be a good combination with a publisher who wanted to do those same jobs that I then wanted to do. So in October of 2021, I wrote to them and I asked for my rights back for those first two books. And I must have been a pain because they said, yeah, sure. <laughs> they didn't have a quibble about it. They just gave, you know, they took them down, gave me the files back. And within a month, I had them reformatted slightly differently. I had already, because too involved, I had already purchased the covers that were on the books because I didn't like the designs that were supplied. So I found my own cover designer. Um, so I just re-released the first two books in time for Christmas last year and got the third book out um, for in, in February. But the book I have coming up is the first one that from start to finish was intended only as a self-publishing project in a book book three of my tutor series had been intended to go to the publisher and then I went I think I want to do this differently and my the level of control I like and just how interested I am in all the all the moving pieces it's really been much more up my alley I think than full traditional or the small press experience was I mean they weren't a bad experience. I'm actually still friendly with one of them and we talk fairly often online, but I think she's much happier with me on a social basis. I love that you tried all those different options. There are so many available to us today that there people really can are. try any, all, or, you know, move around if they want to. And the fact that you received an agent to begin with, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment because I, I'm told that only about 1% of us ever receive an agent's offer. And those numbers just seem to be getting even harder. And I don't know. I think if I had waited a few more years to even try, I would have never even gone that route because there's so much out there now that tells us how to do this and that does everything short of hold your hand and walk you through it. And you can always just, you know, subcontract out the pieces you don't like, you know, different, you know, the, a lot of the technical aspects. I have a friend who's a graphic designer and I trade work with her and she does my cover layout, not my, not my covers for me, but I get the covers and then she does all the fiddly bits to make sure that they upload to Amazon and Ingram spark properly. And I do editing for her in exchange for that. Cause I'm willing to learn most things, but I'm not a graphic designer. <laughs> well, I love bartering that goes right along with your self-sufficiency. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I'm trying to do without any money except for royalties. <laughs> <laughs> not there yet. Well, there's so many historical fiction books out there. What makes yours different? Oh, one of the things I'm going to sidestep and talk about the first series for a moment here, because one of the things I really wanted to do with those books was to get to explore more the ordinary people's experience. Most of the historical fiction in that era you're talking about Henry VIII and the Queens and the upper echelons of society. And I just wanted to see what all the normal people lived like. I mean, some of them are in proximity to power because they might be court servants, but they are not the royals. So it's a whole different, it's a little backstairs view of things. You know, they're sort of above common people, but they're not anybody. So they get to see a lot that it's a lot more fun to write about it from that point of view. 
And I'm also not imagining myself into someone who actually existed, which I really didn't want to do. I don't mind having them as side characters, but I didn't want to be in the head of one of the queens or anything like that. So I really I'm I'm trying to write from a more just every woman, every well, most of my characters are female, but not everybody trying to write from a more ordinary person's perspective in historical fiction to just see how people like us are affected by all of these grand schemes that people in power come up with. Like the new book is set during the Great Depression and some of the parallels between then and now are downright scary. Well, I think those of us who watched or binge watched all the Downton Abbey yeah. uh, episodes love the below the stairs uh, people as much as the above the stairs people. Yes. <laughs> I love that series and mostly for the down, for the downstairs. What about publicity? Have you found anything that works for you or maybe even more importantly, what doesn't work? Um, I'm, I am the throw the spaghetti at the wall type. I will try everything. Um, a lot of, I mean, I, I do all the basic social media and the really the way to get people to know that you exist out there is to not just wait for them to come to you, but to interact with everybody who says anything interesting. I, I have found a few writing friends on social media because they put up snippets of their work. So I do that. I get a lot of traction from just putting up a few paragraphs of something and people wanting to know what happens next. Um, I've, I'm working on building a mailing list. It's not too big yet, but the people who have stuck around this long are pretty interested. And these days um, I'm offering a novella for new subscribers that ties to the the book that's coming out in October. So a little free giveaway never hurts. And besides, I wanted to know backstory that I didn't feel the need to explore in the book. So I just wrote a little extra 8,000 words something and said, okay, that's good. It needs to go somewhere. Um, I've tried blog tours. Those are fun, but I haven't really gotten a lot of, I've gotten some new followers on things, but I haven't really direct seen any direct sales from those so and the other problem is it's constantly changing you know social media's algorithms change as frequently as amazon so marketing is something that i just try to do a little bit of a few times a week when i'm stuck on what i'm writing i'll do a whole bunch of uh, publicity graphics and just stick them to one side in a folder so that you know, then I have a whole bunch of things I can just throw up online when I need something new and I don't have to do it the day of. You know, I run my life off of to-do lists and they're all staggered by this week, next week, should have done it two weeks ago. I'm a, a deadline person myself. You know, if I've got a deadline looming, I really work very well. <laughs> mm -hmm. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing at the last minute. And was it the Douglas Adams quote that says, I love deadlines. I love the sound they make when they go whooshing by. <laughs> That's so true. Karen, you've become quite prolific since you've written your first book. How long on average does it take you to write a book? Um, well, obviously not 20 years anymore. It's surprising once the first one happened and I realized that people actually wanted to read it. It was surprising how much easier the process got when I wasn't just sitting there polishing it for my own sake. 
The second book took about a year and a half. Um, the third one I started at the beginning of lockdown and I had limited things to do. So that probably was about nine months. And the current one coming apart took about seven or eight months. And right now I'm working on the sequel and making notes for the third book. I think it's only going to be a trilogy, but they're talking over each other's and the timelines aren't straight. So I'm just making notes for book three so I don't lose it. Because I sometimes think if you don't put the stuff down, it, you know, your mind is going to go, oh, didn't you value that thought? Fine, I'll just erase it. I'm always uh, amazed by those of you who write um, sequels and, and series and how you divide. How do you know when to stop one and begin another? Do you divide it by the years, by the characters, you know, what's going on with them? How, how did you decide how to divide that into three three books? I didn't know either time that I was writing a series. With the Tudor books, they are, they're, they are a series, but they're actually just linked standalone standalone books. They The character arc for each book closes at the end of the book, but the characters do appear in each other's stories. So anybody you got attached to in book one will still be around, but they're just having normal things happen. It's not the big dramatic arc of their life. So, and the Tudor books I may go back to later. I, you know, since they, they are that way, I could close it off at three books. And I did actually put out a box set just in ebook form of the three of them. Um, but for the, for coming apart, I thought it was a standalone. I thought I knew the ending. Um, and then because it got a little crowded, when I started the book, it was supposed to have, uh, it was supposed to be dual point of view. It was supposed to be the two sisters. And I started it in third person, which is not I, I tend to write in first these days. I used to write in third and I got into first and I'm just much more comfortable there. So I started writing in first, but it bothered me that I was doing alternating chapters in two different viewpoints. And I'm like, I am going to have to really make sure that these voices are different. If I do it in first, it's going to be really hard. And then I looked at it and went, do I even want both POV in there? And I took it apart and I just made the made, made it about the primary character, Ava. And I started writing it just for her. And then I realized that I really missed the second point of view. She had a lot to say that contrasted with her sister. And when I started it for the third time, not only is it two points of view, there are occasional diary entries from Ava's oldest daughter, who's 12 and very observant. Uh, it's back in first person and it's first person present. You can hear me hang banging my head on the desk in Texas. <laughs> it, it sounds like it's gone through a lot of changes. <laughs> it has, but once I once I hit where it wanted to be, then it just picked up speed. And it decided to be a second book because I'd had my original ending in mind. Usually by the time I'm about 20% in, I know how it ends and I'll draft those final few scenes. Even if they change later on, I like having a destination. But with the two points of view and how much happened that I hadn't originally intended, I'm like, this book is never going to end if I keep going to that. And then I looked at it and realized that the point I was aiming at should actually be like a major plot point in the second book. And I had actually passed a really good ending. 
I decided that the the ending of the book should be a specific thing before it like launches into something else. So it's like, oh, I've actually written 20,000 words of book two. Let's just cut these in half now. Well, those characters really do start talking to us and they lead us down paths that we didn't think we were going to go in the first place. They do. They're very opinionated. Well, tell us a little bit more about the book. Uh, set up what you're going to read for us today so that we can hear your tone and voice in the book. Okay. Well, Coming Apart is a story of two sisters, um, Claire and Ava. They grew up in a poor coal mining town in upstate Pennsylvania. Claire left town when she was 17, got a job, found a husband, moved to Philadelphia, and Ava stayed, married her childhood sweetheart, is living her mother's life down to the number of children. She's in the same falling down house she grew up in. And she's fine with that, except she resents that her sister hasn't come home for years. And when their mother dies at the beginning of the book and Claire returns, they reconcile after they have a long conversation the night they sit up with their mother before the funeral when Ava realizes that her sister's easy life isn't really quite that easy. You know, Claire has five, or Ava has five children, and Claire has lost that many. She does not have the family fertility gene, apparently, and as a pretty but poor girl marrying into a good family, her only real goal that she has put on herself is to provide her husband with an heir, and it's not working. So, when they part after the funeral, they're, they've gotten very close again. They recognize the relationship that they used to have, and they've promised to try to stay close again. But then Ava has, a ba I mean, Ava has her baby, her husband loses his job, and her life just comes apart at the seams. And it's really hard for her to see her sister again because she's so deep in what's going on. And then she gets a letter from her sister asking if she and her husband, Harry, can adopt that most recent baby. And that's that's the dilemma of the story is, you know, do you do you give up one child potentially to save the rest of your family? And even if it's your sister and you love her and you trust her, how can you live with yourself? So those are my girls. Well, let's let's hear the section you're going to read to us. Okay, it start, this is the beginning of the book. It starts in Ava's point of view, um, right before her mother's death. Mama's breathing is shallow as she ascends the ladder to the heaven she believes in so fervently. Pearl and little Thelma pray at her bedside, and I close my eyes and try to pray with them. But my girls have more faith in the Almighty than I do at this moment. It's hard to believe in a God who would put an old woman through so much pain. In these last months, the loudest sound in our house has been my mother struggling to breathe. It drowns out all the other noises, doors banging, kids shouting, kids crying inevitably. The thud of Daniel's work boots on the stairs, the clatter as the stove is filled with wood, the mind whistle which tells the time as surely as the bells from the church. Now her struggle is coming to an end and we're gathered around the narrow bed in the front room where she chose to sleep ever since Daniel came home from the war and we began our marriage. She wanted to give us privacy, but she also liked to be at the center of everything. Mama never stopped running the house, even as her eyesight failed and her health followed. Watching her lying there, working so hard at dying, I feel no older than Thelma. A child. Her child. 
does this long smothering press down on her the way it does the rest of us? It's been three days since she last spoke, and then it was only to pray. Her voice left her in the middle of a Hail Mary. It's only right, I suppose, but I would have preferred some guidance instead. A long, rattling breath. Is this one shorter? There aren't many people in this world that I like, much less love, but I would die for every person in this room. Kill for them if need be. Maybe that's why Daniel and I made so many kids, so I'd have more people to care about. Only one is missing, Dandy, my firstborn. He should be here, but if he was, then his father would be gone. They never work the same shift at the mine. If something happens, that way only one of them will be lost. A persistent kicking under my breastbone reminds me there's yet another soul in the room, and I put my hand on the hard swelling of this latest child. That's another worry. Without Mama, we'll need to pay for a midwife. The silence, when it comes, is louder than her breathing. We all wait to see if she gasps to breath to life again. It's happened before. This time she stays quiet. Gone. Across from me, Daniel looks up, and I see on his unguarded face a grief as deep as my own. Mama had treated him as one of hers even before we were married, and he'd been with her longer than most of her own brood. Well, that's it then. His chair scrapes on the scarred linoleum. Are you okay? Once, when I was ten, Mary Ora had punched me in the stomach so hard it took my breath. That's how I feel now. We'll be fine. I manage a tight smile. You go on up to the store and let Frank know. He shrugs into his patched gray coat and rests his hands on my shoulders. Sure you'll be all right? I tilt my head back and slide my hands over his, letting his unspoken comfort seep into me. We'll be fine. The, the words are meant to reassure, but I have no idea how I'm going to manage without her. I'm 32 years old with five kids and another on the way, and I'm scared to death, though I will barely admit it to myself. Mama raised me not to give in to hard times, and I'm raising our kids the same way. I just wish there weren't so many opportunities for us to practice. That is so poignant, so poignant. <sighs> so many of us have have sat around a bed like that, and it, it just it just kept us right there with you. Thank you. It's been an interesting project for me because I was an only child and don't have any kids, and my family you know, they were all much older, so I don't have a lot of them left even now. So writing a story set deeply embedded in family was really interesting. And I feel like I missed out on a lot. <laughs> well, you, you certainly wrote it as if you, as if you know it. So you did a great job with that. Thank you. What do you think was the best money you've ever spent as a writer? Oh, it's a toss up between uh, cover artists, because whether we like it or not, people do judge books by their covers and my membership to the Alliance of Independent Authors, because they are a huge source of information for writing, editing, publishing questions. And you get five free upload codes every month for Ingram Spark. So if I use three of those in a year, that pays for the membership and it saves me a lot of money in the upload because Ingram is where all the paperbacks come from. So they're both really valuable. I, I could come up with the cash for the uploads, but I couldn't do the graphic designer. So I would have to say covers are the most important. I think that's very true. And always Karen, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are such a unique group. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? 
Don't let anybody, including yourself, tell you that you can't do it or that you're too old. We've we've put ourselves and our writing aside for a lot of years to do other things. And during that time, we've lived a lot and we've learned a lot. And we've also, I think a lot of times, learned to silence the voices a lot more because so many of the things that you know made us scared to do things when we were younger, it's like eventually it starts to fade off. So take advantage of that and finally do what you want. That's great advice. And I would give the same advice to anyone who's listening today. We call it writing in life's sweetest third. So we think we still have a lot to say. And we just appreciate your time today, Karen. And we're now happy to say that you're one of our authors over 50. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.